Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach. Have you ever wondered how well-suited you are for ethical non-monogamy? Well, you can find out by taking my quiz. And you can find the quiz right on the homepage of my website, which is sumatisparks.com. That's S-U-M-A-T-I Sparks, as in sparks are flying. And when you enter your email, you'll be added to my mailing list as well, and you'll be the first to learn about both my online events as well as my live events in the San Francisco Bay Area. So tonight, I'm really excited to have as my guest, Blake Zeeler. Blake is an ally, advocate, and educator for folks in the polyqueer and alternative lifestyle worlds. Drawing on training in radical honesty, landmark, NLP, sex education, and the art of fearless intimacy, Blake works with individuals, couples, and moresomes to engineer the types of healthy relationships they want most. Welcome to the show, Blake. Thank you, Sumati. It's a privilege to be here. So glad to have you. So the concept of terms and labels has been up for me a lot lately. So why don't I start with just asking you, um, you say that you um, support people in the alternative lifestyle world. So what labels and terms do you identify with? Thank you for asking. Um, I use he, his pronouns. And I generally refer to myself as polyamorous over non-monogamous for various reasons. I also identify as bisexual and pansexual. Uh, Kind of depends on who I'm talking to. Some people have never heard the word pansexual, but neither neither bothers me at all. Um, And I I, I would say that that pretty much covers it for me. Cisgendered Mm -hmm. as well. Okay. So why don't you start by identifying the term pansexual for those listeners that have not heard that term before. I'd be happy to. Pansexual kind of refers to people who are attracted to just about anyone across the gender spectrum. Um, Bisexual tends to reinforce the gender binary as if there are only men and women. And I find myself drawn to people who are very much non-binary and fall somewhere in between those two labels and identify themselves as neither. Mm-hmm. I think there's often so say, uh, a judgment. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, so you could say pansexual essentially says that I am often or sometimes attracted to everyone or anyone. Right. That's what I was going to say. So I think judgmental people might say, oh, you're just the sex being attracted to everyone all the time. So wouldn't it be more accurate to say that you can be attracted to people on the full spectrum, but doesn't necessarily mean you're attracted to every single human being. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that would or be more accurate. I'm cer- <laughs> no, certainly not everyone, um, but the potential exists. For me, it's generally a matter yeah. of... Yeah, for me, it's generally a matter of if the if an emotional connection exists with someone, someone, then their gender presentation or identity doesn't really matter so much to me. Got it. That's perfect. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, and so, since I like to focus more on the um, non-monogamy, polyamory aspects of of life, um, let's dig in there a little bit and tell me how you found your way into polyamory. <laughs> Clumsily and with lots of trial and error. 
Um, years ago, I had a partner with whom we were exploring being open, but we didn't really have any vocabulary for it because we didn't really know any people who were openly open in their relationship. Um, but it started small with, you know, kissing and flirting with other people, and we really enjoyed that. And over time, we started finding people who identified as polyamorous, and they taught us a bit more. And so we took a liking to some of these folks, and they invited us to come play with them, so to speak. And so we made a choice to open up and started calling ourselves polyamorous. And from that point, it was a lot of learning and unlearning. Um, I picked up a number of books that were very informative, like Sex at Dawn and The Ethical Slut, kind of the classics in our in our world. And mm -hmm. as I was going through it, I, I realized that my head agreed with just about everything that I found. All the different precepts of non-monogamy and polyamory made a lot of sense to me. And my gut was lagging behind a little bit. And so I got curious about that and started doing the work of really exploring, like, why do I believe the things I do about relationships? Where do my values about sex and love come from? And the more I dug, the more I learned about myself and the more I was able to make conscious choices to set down some old conditioning and adopt values that were of my own choosing. Mm -hmm. um, so I often hear people who, who eventually become coaches and therapists that are poly-friendly um, found their way into helping other people because they made so many mistakes themselves. And I fall into that same category. I always say that I made all the mistakes for you, so you don't have to take as long as I did to learn the lessons. So <laughs> since you've been working with um, people who are practicing alternative lifestyles like this, have you had any examples of people who started out with a coach such as yourself and made faster progress and were able to navigate their way into what they wanted a little more quickly rather than the trial and error unsupported way that most of us start out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, your, your story resonates with me quite a bit. I wish that I had had um, a mentor or a coach or any kind of guidance when I first got into this because I was clueless and made a whole bunch of mistakes that I'm sure a lot of beginners do. Um, I do know a handful of people who have found a mentor or a coach early in their poly career, if I could call it that. Um, and I have seen those people, you know, very quickly recognize like, okay, this is a big complicated world and trying to figure it all out on my own is going to be probably a lot more pain than is necessary. And so they have, you know, by luck or by, by searching have found someone like myself to learn from. And I find that mm -hmm. those people tend to do quite a bit better in the short to midterm um, than other folks. I think a lot of people who go at polyamory kind of the brute force way by just figuring it all out for themselves eventually give up because it's just not worth mm -hmm. all of the processing and strain and jealousy that beginners often experience. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to dig deeper into that, but first, while we're talking about you, um, can you share some of your biggest road bumps and what you learned from them? No, certainly. Um, <clears throat> I think that the, the biggest pitfall that people tend to fall into early on is, is they don't have the communication skills or practice that are really required 
to to do this um, fluidly and ethically. Uh, people tend to use a minimum number of words to talk about the things that they need to talk about with their partners instead of really going into it. An example of this would be um, like something like the word respect. Like let's say a couple has just opened up and they have a rule or something like, well, we're only going to date people as long as they respect our existing relationship. Well, mm -hmm. that might feel all well and good to them, but what does that word mean? And have they taken the mm -hmm. time to really suss it out for themselves? I mean, respect could take many forms. It could mean being, you know, totally deferent to the needs of the primary relationship. It could mean, you know, giving attention and a little bit of uh, a little bit of honor to the existing relationship. It's these are the kind of tricky things. And if I could go back and do it all over again, I would have had a lot more conversation with my partner um, because we. It kind of felt like we did the minimum. It was like, do you want this? Yeah. Do you want this? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's go for it. And mm -hmm. we didn't really know what we didn't really know what to talk about. Honestly, we didn't really have mm -hmm. a playbook or a list of topics that would have been you know, useful to to help us really get clear on what do we need and what's going to help us feel secure and all those sort of things. Mm -hmm. And then, so can you give us an example just so we get to know you a little bit more about like a major crisis that you happen with, had with your partner um, that you're eventually able to resolve and the lessons you learn from it? Mm. Well, um, I would love to tell you a story that had a happy ending, but the first partner that I opened up with, um, you know, we did, we were polyamorous for about two years when we, you know, had the language for it and had other partners that whole time. And eventually, you know, it, it, the whole, the whole scenario just brewed a lot of conflict and it, and it made for um, way more processing than anyone was comfortable with. And as I said earlier, I was kind of, doing the reading and checking out these different books and, and doing what I could to get myself emotionally aligned with what my mm -hmm. brain told me was logically valuable. And, mm -hmm. and she didn't really, she had other things going on, like going to grad school. And so a couple mm -hmm. years into it, I was, I had drank the Kool-Aid. I was like, Oh, this is totally the way I want to live. I can't really imagine going back to being monogamous. And she was just tired of, of the talking and the stress. And, and ultimately we chose to break up. Um, mm -hmm. polyamory was not the only reason for that, um, but it was definitely one of the big ones. And I would, mm -hmm. again, if I could go back and do it all over again, you know, I, I don't know that I would have, would have decided not to become poly, but I would have done a lot more front end work to mm -hmm. get ourselves some comfortable footing, you know, and having, having learned from that lesson, I've, you know, in relationships that have followed, I've applied what I've learned and, and put a lot of the work out front so that you know you and your you and your partner can be very clear about what do you want and what sort of relationship shapes do you see in your in your future and what are you comfortable with so that ultimately you can make a determination early and quickly that you know this is a fit or this is probably not a fit mm -hmm. well yeah i see the lessons in that and i didn't necessarily mean the lesson had to be with staying with the same person um, I, I yeah. see the lessons that you learned that you've been able to bring into your next relationship. So sure. your next relationship. So that's, that's excellent. Thank you for sharing that. Um, mm -hmm. So what was your path to calling yourself the relationship engineer? Mm. Well, uh, a couple of years back I was uh, working in kind of a corporate 
nine to five kind of gig um, that was going pretty well for me financially, but I was not at all passionate about it. Uh, I was working in healthcare and, and, you know, selling medical devices and all the while, like I found with most of my free time, I was far more interested in reading personal growth books or um, devoting myself to my social network, which oftentimes was dominated by my poly family, as I called it. Um, And so I, a huge number of hours in my life were devoted to things outside of work, um, particularly relationships and and relationship growth. Um, And so I kind of got to a point where I was really fed up with this job and I had saved up a significant chunk of change. And so I quit and took a sabbatical for about, I don't know, about eight months and really didn't have a plan. I realized that I didn't want to go back to the corporate world, but I didn't really know what was next for me. So I did some traveling and uh, sat with some shamans and, you know, came back home and really started putting my time and energy into hanging out with people who were in the coaching world, who were running workshops and, you know, enrolling in those workshops and also helping to, to uh, help facilitate them. And what I learned along the way was that this was absolutely the place that I wanted to be. Um, and so little by little, I kept training and, and studying the, the different uh, modalities that you mentioned at the beginning of the show and just started applying myself to my, my friends and, and people that I already had in my life. You know, they would come to me with issues that they were having and I would help them sort them out. And after a while, it became clear that this was more of a, more of a calling for me than anything else I had done before. And mm-hmm. so the term relationship engineer kind of landed on me uh, as a gift from a friend. But uh, back when I was in college, I was, I was studying engineering and really liked studying technology, but I didn't really like what an engineer's life looks like. So, mm-hmm. you know, my, my stint, my stint in medical devices was kind of like a, a way to use technology and use my degree, but I wasn't really interested in being an engineer straight away. Uh, And then somewhat more recently, I was sitting down with a dear friend of mine and describing to her the path that my career had taken. And I said, yeah, I guess I kind of gave up being an engineer. And she says, well, no, you haven't. Now you engineer relationships and human potential. (laughs) And I loved it. I loved it so much and asked her, I'm like, can I keep that please? Cause that is absolutely <laughs> the title, the title I want. Um, but this is kind of how I, kind of how I think about relationships is that they are, they are built. They are built from, you know, the various bits and pieces like love and trust and devotion and attention and, you know, mutual investment. And so therefore they can be constructed soundly like a building can, or they can be constructed poorly and then they are, flimsy and fall apart over time Um, and as it applies to polyamory it's just more complex engineering Mm -hmm. yeah and i i know that we use technologies in relationships uh, relationship coaching we use certain technologies and you have a background in certain technologies like radical honesty nlp etc um Mm -hmm. so what would you say um maybe give us an example of a technology that you frequently use that you think is really important when you're coaching people who are in non-monogamous situations? Mm. Well, the first one that comes to mind is nonviolent communication. One of the things that, um, for those of you who have not read the book, nonviolent communication, I highly recommend it. Uh, One of the things that I encounter 
with uh, couples who come to me for support is that oftentimes they, they reach out for support because they're at a breaking point of one kind or another. And when I listen to the things that they are saying to each other, they're not always all the way to the end of being abusive, but they're often quite short and loaded with interpretation and story and, and people start lobbing judgments at each other before they even realize they're doing it. Um, and mm-hmm. that, that method doesn't really work very well because then each partner is jumping from foot to foot, trying not to be made wrong. Um, that expression making wrong comes from uh, landmark education, which is another technology that I find very, very useful as well. Often with the clients that sit down with me, they will come to the table and they'll be like, okay, here's the problem. My partner is doing X because And then they will lay out a big explanation of what their partner's motivations and intentions are. And it's all a big story. It's all a story that has been made made up like stories are by the person who is speaking. And it doesn't necessarily, actually it rarely aligns with the experience of the person who's being talked about. Um, Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I have to draw people's attention to the idea that, when they're interpreting what their partner is doing or saying and why they're doing and saying it, they're not listening to what their partner is saying to them. They're listening only to their own thoughts. Uh, And Mm -hmm. that technology can be quite freeing. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, And then, you know, I see you have a background in radical honesty. and, And if you look up the definition of polyamory on Wikipedia, it says, um, that honesty, transparency, and vulnerability are the key tenets to successful open relationship. So mm-hmm. my question for you is, how do people learn to be transparent and honest with each other when they're afraid what they say might hurt the other person? Oof, that's a very good question. <laughs> um, pra- <laughs> practice. Practice. Um, yeah, it, it really, it, it's, you know, getting honest about our feelings um, is quite vulnerable and getting radically honest about our feelings can be radically vulnerable. And indeed, mm-hmm. like being able to, being able to sit down and listen to a partner who's having an emotional experience and just hold space, just listen to what they're saying without reacting to it is, is a skill. It's not something that can be taught in one sitting. It has to be practiced mm-hmm. again and again. Um, and there are, you know, there are other technologies that you can use to expand your capacity um, to hold that much emotion. You know, embodiment practice comes to mind. Uh, we could talk a bit more about that later if you like. Um, but really, like, uh, the, the term radical honesty comes from a book by the same title, and, and there are a number of great workshops that are being run by that community too. Uh, and a lot of what they teach is how to express your emotions in a raw and honest form without any story attached to them whatsoever. And then also on the, on the other side of the table, being able to sit with and listen to another person's feelings without reacting or interpreting what's being said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's kind of like two things that happen. I think a lot of us are afraid to speak our honest truth because we caretake the other person and we often are making assumptions that it will hurt their feelings and we don't really even know if it will. Um, and then the, other, the reverse of that is when somebody is very, very hurt by it and they, you know, their ego is so wrapped up in it that they can't seem to separate out 
what that person's feeling from how it's landing on them. Do you know what I mean? That, I do. That's very well said. And what I'm hearing in, in your statement um, is a relationship to shame, which I think is one of the things that undermines all relationships, not, not just open relationships, but all relationships, whether they're romantic or with your parents or with your children. Um, shame pops up in a number of insidious ways. So to, like, to build off of what you said, oftentimes like one partner might be afraid to say to another partner like, hey, I really want to have sex with this other person because they have some old piece of programming that we could call slut shaming that tells them that if they want to, you know, sleep around a little bit and have multiple partners, that that makes them, I don't know, a, a Jezebel or a player or a tramp, something like that. And mm-hmm. they've got some, some internalized shame about that. Um, on the other side of that, on the other side of that coin, you know, if I have something that, it, or someone has something that they want to say to their partner and they're afraid that it might hurt them. One of the things that's coming up there is kind of shame on both sides right? Like I'm afraid to tell my partner, Hey, what you did hurt me because they might feel as though I'm shaming them. And if they Mm -hmm. get upset, then I might go, I might turn around and shame myself for being a bad partner and hurting them. It's also complicated. So it's so much easier if we just tell the freaking truth, right? (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. Um, But it does take practice and, 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 and learning about it. I mean, to be honest, we are not, raised with a robust education in emotional intelligence in this country, perhaps really anywhere in the world. Um, And there are great books and great authors and great researchers out there on the subject of shame. Brene Brown comes to mind. Um, The author of Radical Honesty has done great work. And these are really the best resources that we have available to really learn the structure and landscape of our own emotional makeup. Uh, and I think that a lot of people get to adulthood with an adolescent training in emotional intelligence, and then they wonder why their relationships are fraught with problems or why they seem to keep repeating the same form of of, of relationship, whether that's codependent or anxiously insecure. Um, attachment theory factors into this as well, which is another interesting topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've talked about that on my show with a few different people. That seems to be the latest uh, technology that people are playing with is the the attachment styles um, uh, paradigm. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, well, thank you. That's that's really been great because I do feel that emotional intelligence is lacking in our world. And I, I remember seeing this video about some Chinese children that were sent to a town in a little village because their parents have to work and they just can't even care for them. So there's this whole town full of children and they're Mm. all getting really well educated and they're all getting really well fed and they're very healthy and well-dressed, but there's like zero affection, zero talking about Mm. feelings. Like they just forgot to include that. (laughs) This whole generation of little children are growing up without that. It was frightening. So, yeah, that that they is, were valuing education over that. Yeah, like, you know, standard book education over emotional education. Totally. I, I could see how that could lead to a generation of maladjusted children. And, and indeed, yeah. even, in, even, in this con- even in this country, we have a number of taboos around emotion that I don't think serve anybody. Um, 
you know, take anger, for example. Anger is generally looked at as something that is bad, just categorically. Uh, like, you should never express anger. You should never be angry, let alone, let, let alone rage or violence. Like, let's not even ever go there. The only form of anger that is ever looked at as okay is righteous indignation, where you have been mm-hmm. wronged and victimized somehow, and then any amount of anger that you want to express is totally okay. I mean, we've written dozens and if not hundreds of movie plots about this, you know, mm-hmm. guy gets his, his wife taken from him or something. And then he goes on a murderous rampage and we're all sitting there cheering him on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, why is that right. okay? And, and other, other forms of anger are not, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Right. Right. Yeah. Every movie we could pick apart with the lack of emotional intelligence, <laughs> but mm-hmm. anyway, so, um, so I want to share something vulnerable about myself. Um, when you were publicizing being a guest on this show, um, somebody commented on your Facebook post about um, mm-hmm. open, oh, open relationship. Isn't that um, hierarchical? And, um, mm-hmm. and I think they also uh, criticized using the term intimacy in lieu of, of sex or sexuality. And um, mm-hmm. I think it was the way the person worded it, it felt, I took it on as a little bit attacking and I, my fight or flight mode got triggered and I felt this adrenaline in my body and I just breathed and said, okay, this is interesting. Let's see how I can love this person and how I can maybe learn from them. What can I learn from this? You know, Mm -hmm. so I slept on it and the next day I started thinking about, well, you know, open relationship implies my my um, typical clients that I work with are couples in long-term relationships who are opening their relationship for the first time. And I haven't mm-hmm. found very many people that can go from point A to point Z immediately. Um, yeah. So going from like a long-term marriage or partnership to non-hierarchy where all relationships are equal in value is kind of a big leap, don't you think? I, I do think it's a big leap, and I think that it also, it you know, it can kind of come up in, you know, more than one way, right? Like, if you have an existing long-term relationship, even if you, that couple is practicing, they're expressing that they're, they're practicing non-hierarchical polyamory, they might say that they're not prescriptively hierarchical, but they are descriptively hierarchical just because one mm-hmm. relationship has is so much more established and has so much more history and investment in it. Um, mm-hmm. it the idea, the idea that more than one relationship are going to have these, the same foot, the same size footprint and take up the same amount of space or have the same constituency of emotions, experience, sexual activity, I, I think is kind of nonsensical. Um, mm-hmm. But to answer your question more directly, I think that, you know, we have to learn to walk before we learn to run. And so for established couples who have never known anything but monogamy, it makes a lot of sense to, to start out with kind of a, a primary secondary arrangement. And, and indeed that, that works for a lot of people. It helps them feel secure and it's a way to build trust in the whole concept over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As long as it's consensual with the other people that they're engaging with, as long as the other people know there is, that they're a secondary and that there's these certain agreements that they're following. Um, and, and also some couples want to just start by being monogamish where they might go to a swinger party um, and only play with each other. 
um, or they mm-hmm. might open up to flirting without actually making physical contact with others. So they're not necessarily standard monogamous. Monogamous. Monog- what is the word? Monogamish. <laughs> I forgot the word. Monogamous. Monogamous. They're not like the typical monogamous couple, but neither are they, you know, polyamorous because they're not having sex or um, having love relationships. Um, but they, they do consider totally. themselves more open than they were. So there's a lot of gradations totally. um, and steps that people can take before they go all the way to relationship anarchy or non-hierarchical polyamory. <laughs> <laughs> um, agreed, the other, the agreed. other thing and, that I was think. yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that a quote that I really like is there are as many types of non-monogamy as there are people who describe themselves as non-monogamous. Exactly. Like, right, right. Yeah. Very true. Um, So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. And we're speaking with Blake Zeeler, who is a uh, relationship engineer, um, primarily working with folks in the polyqueer and alternative lifestyle worlds. And we're talking about couples opening their relationship. and some criticism that I got recently. Now, I knew, be, you know, putting myself out there as an open relationship coach in the world, I would eventually get some venom, especially on the Internet when people, it's like road rage. They feel like they can say anything and just drive away, right? <laughs> so you and me so both. I was like, oh, yeah. So I was like, oh, yeah, I got my first uh, criticism. And so one of them was um, using the word intimacy for, in lieu of the word sex. Conflating, I think right. is the word they use, conflating the word intimacy with sex. So I, mm-hmm. I got a little triggered by the criticism, and I, I didn't act on it. You know, I slept on it. I woke up in the morning, and I looked um, on my OkCupid dating profile, and ironically, I found a profile from a man, and this is a verbatim quote from him. This is a few sentences here. He says, mm-hmm. married over 40 years to a remarkable woman, but we aren't intimate. It's been decades, but we are bonded Mm. and secure in our relationship. She knows I'm a sexual person and we have an understanding. And so I thought, thank you for validating me using the word intimate, because it's just like an NVC where you want to use the language of the person that you're trying to give compassionate listening to. You don't want to stick to some kind of terminology just because it's right. It's more important Mm -hmm. to... um, help your clients feel heard and understood. And if they feel comfortable using the word intimate, we know what it means. I mean, come on. (laughs) So, um, yeah. So I just wanted to share that because that, that is my ideal client right there. Somebody who I don't feel like they have to dismantle their entire marriage of multiple decades when they've got a family, a house, a business community, just because they have mismatched sexual desires for whatever reason. Um, so open relationship is one possible solution to that. It doesn't, um, it doesn't mean their whole relationship is broken. It just means that this one area that there's not a match. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So that was it, my pushback uh, against the word intimacy. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that one of the things that's coming up for me as I'm listening to you speak on this is one of these kind of societal expectations that I think a lot of people carry with them about partnership. And that is that when you pick a partner, you pick a life partner, and particularly if if you are used to a monogamy model, 
the the I think mostly unspoken expectation is that that person needs to be your partner for everything, like the be all and end all partner for you, like a parent, a, a financial partner, someone to cohabitate with, someone who's going to fulfill, mm-hmm. fulfill, fulfill your sex life, someone who's going to be a good listener. I mean, the list goes on. And I think mm-hmm. that one of the attractions, at least for me personally, of polyamory is that you don't have to put that much expectation on any one person. You can get mm-hmm. the, the whole array of human needs met from multiple sources. You know, and indeed, mm-hmm. a lot of monogamous people do this just with their platonic friends. So they're kind of used yeah. to it. But I think unshackling the, our partners from the need for, from meeting, the need for them to meet all of our needs, you know, and giving them a mm-hmm. break from that is quite, is quite a gift. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of couples get to a point where they recognize that and they seek someone like you or me to help them open up and get their needs met. Yeah, and not to mention, um, you know, so many sex problems in monogamous marriages and partnerships are about, you know, I like sex this way, I want more of this, and you don't like to do that. So fine, enjoy what they do have to offer, and then find somebody else who does that other thing, whatever it is, whether it's BDSM or, or you know, maybe um, they want more oral or whatever it is, you know, that... Uh, sure. You don't have to make that one person try to mold them into your be-all, end-all sex partner either. Absolutely. And, I mean, having having mismatched desires sexually is pretty common, I think. I, I think it's, you know, sex has got so many different little bits and pieces to it that people either like or don't like. And, you know, to find somebody who is your perfect match in every way is, again, feels like a tall order. Yeah. And some people get lucky enough to find that, but they're the exception. (laughs) I agree. So what would you say are some of the best ways to go about incorporating a new partner into a relationship that already exists? Um, With lots and lots of rapport. (laughs) Um, And what I mean by that is, you know, step back from from what's happening and and look at just how complicated it could be. Um, So... When you have, you know, let's say one partner in a in an existing in an existing couple, let's call them partner A, develops an interest in an, an outside third person, and they want to, you know, maybe start dating this person or having sex with this person. I would say that the best first step, rather than making plans with this new interested party, is to, you know, come back to your existing partner, partner B, and say like, hey, I'm having these feelings and I'm having these interests. You know, what do you think of that? You know, and, and give, your, give that existing partner time to explore all the things that come up around this idea. Um, rather than jumping directly to asking for permission, I think it in the long run, it goes a lot better if you create an open dialogue about, hey, how would this impact you? You know, what sort of reaction do you have to these feelings that I'm having? Um, and, and, and so that kind of conversation, you know, could take weeks or months, but uh, I think it's a, a better way to go about it than to just defaulting to what I call a permission protocol where everything is yes and no questions. Um, and then beyond that, I think, I believe quite strongly in metamor connections. Um, I'm sure you've used the word metamor on your show before, but for our listeners, I'll, I'll, define it, I'll define it quickly. Your partner's partner is your metamor. So in this scenario that I'm describing, 
um, partner A is interested in dating some outside party, so this, this new outside party and partner B are metamorphs. And you can't force metamorphs to like each other, certainly, but if they do, it can help things go a lot more smoothly down the road. And, you know, to do that, to, you know, get to that place or even just develop a baseline of connection, you know, it helps to create situations where rapport can be built, you know, introduce them to each other before you go off and do something with this new partner um, or very shortly in, in the relationship or early on in the relationship, I mean, um, and give them a chance to get to know each other a little bit. Um, if that happens, you know, and the, the, the metamorphs don't have to be lovers. They don't have to be best friends or anything like that. Um, sometimes that happens, indeed. Uh, metamorphs sometimes develop really powerful bonds with each other. But creating space for each party, not just the existing partner, but the newcomer as well, to, you know, feel seen, feel heard, feel valued in the scenario can really go a long way. And two things to keep in mind that go with that, you know, the obvious one is that the existing partner is likely to have some anxiety or some nervousness that this new person could pose a threat or, you know, take their partner away from them in many different ways in, in terms of time or attention or, 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 you know, in the grandest sense, like permanently take them away, which is sort of the kind of the great fear of, of, of monogamy, I think. Um, but also keep in mind that the new partner coming into the situation is coming into an existing established relationship that already has a ton of rapport. So the new partner in many ways is on not very solid ground to begin with. And I think that the partner, the existing partner is in a position of power oftentimes when someone new is coming into the picture and they can do a lot to make this new party feel comfortable, invited and safe while also becoming more comfortable and safe themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. And so do you think that the a don't ask, don't tell situation can work? Uh, uh, I have not yet to see it work. I think that in mm-hmm. theory it could um, but the reason I think that it rarely does work is that the mind abhors a void. It doesn't like the unknown. Um, mm-hmm. And our imagination tends to an unknown space with things that are far scarier and bigger and mm, jealousy inducing. I mean, all, the, all these kind of negative consequences. Our imagination tends to fill the space with bad ideas. So in a don't ask, don't tell scenario, I think oftentimes the the partners that are trying to practice that end up getting pretty scared and jealous anyway because they're imagining that their partner is having everything they've ever wanted you know all of their dreams are coming true and it's all being kept in the dark um and i'm also you, you touched on it earlier i'm i'm a huge advocate of honesty and transparency and openness as a baseline for practicing all kinds of non-monogamy um because it it, it's it's an act of love, you know, to to bring your partner into into your intimate life and into your heart and let them know, you know, where you're at and what you want and what you're doing. Um, mm-hmm. Is how is how intimacy is built. It's you know how mm-hmm. trust is built. And I think that mm-hmm. don't ask, don't tell, ultimately undermines intimacy and trust. Mm-hmm. And have you worked with partners who where one is really not interested in dating anyone else. They call it uh, 
polymono, but I don't like that term because I think if you're the one who's not dating other people and your partner is, you're still poly. That's actually the harder part of poly. (laughs) (laughs) So to call this, I was in that position before where I was with a man who was in a long-term marriage and had a 30-year partner, and and I was having trouble finding anyone else to date because I was so in love with him that people I would date would run off into monogamy land after a month because they didn't take me seriously. So my friends would often say to me, are you being poly these days? And I'm like, dude, I'm more poly than him because I'm having to deal with him having these two other long-term relationships. So anyway, I don't like the term polymono, but where one person's not interested in dating, they don't feel like they're wired that way. They've, Mm -hmm. they've given permission or they've, they've said, yes, let's try to make this work. And their partner is out dating. Um, and it's hard for them because they don't understand it. They don't understand people that are wired that way, and they, they make up all kinds of stuff about it. So do you have any um, experience with that or any advice for people in that situation? Absolutely. Um, that's a scenario that's actually pretty close to home for me. I currently have a partner um, who is far less interested in dating other people than I am. Um, mm-hmm. She is quite, She's quite open sexually and likes to be more polysexual with with other folks and um, but dating kind of to her occurs as like a a waste of time it's just not something that really like you know she has a whole lot of interest in like hanging out on okcupid or swiping left and right to try to find someone to go spend friday night with and she's just kind of like eh i'm not so not so not so important to me um and we've we've managed to make it work just because we've been honest about where we're both at. It's like, Hey, this is what I want to do. And this is what you want to do. And is there anything wrong with that? And neither of us have really found that there is anything wrong with it. It works for us. Um, you know, that being said, I think that like there may come a time in the future where the right person comes along and catches her attention in just the right way. And she might, have feelings that she has yet to experience and really want to form a bond and an ongoing relationship with someone new. And part of me hopes that that'll happen. And the rest of me is also just trying to remain unattached to that notion being something that needs to happen. Um, You know, she has certainly heard a lot of what I have to say and a lot of my feelings about why I date and what it's like for me and what I enjoy about it. And she's like, cool, that, that sounds like fun. I'm glad you're enjoying yourself and I don't want that. I'm like, okay, Mm -hmm great you don't have to want that mm-hmm. and and it, right. and it, it can work it can work out um i mean we are you know i would not describe her as monogamous at all like we are she's very poly in her own way but it's not necessarily from the many loves angle mm-hmm. right um and i think you were talking about security on one of your facebook lives the other day but this this makes me think about how um Monog- the, something you said made me think about how monogamy is actually less secure than poly because, um, you know, if somebody is inherently monogamous and they're kind of trying poly or they're tolerating poly, um, they're more likely to find someone else who matches them on a monogamy level and leave than a polyamorous person who's dating lots and lots of people and is just committed mm-hmm. to the polyamorous lifestyle, they're not going to leave. They might mm-hmm. prioritize their time differently, and that can be a challenge, but it doesn't mean they're going to stop loving you or stop being with you. So it's the reverse of, of what um, people who don't understand polyamory think, um, that if you're poly, totally. you might leave your partner, right? 
Yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen that scenario happen where, you know, a couple opens up and one of them is much more inclined towards monogamy and finds someone else who is, and they just go off and become monogamous. I mean, that's totally mm-hmm. happens. Um, but the idea that poly is more secure than monogamy or monogamy is more secure than poly, my feeling on that is that neither is more secure. I think that secure people form secure relationships. And unless you have a secure, unless you are secure in yourself, your relationship won't be secure uh, or you won't, you will never feel secure in your relationship or never is a superlative, but you know what I mean? Like there will always be things that, that challenge your feelings of security. Um, You know, even in a monogamous structure, it could be something as simple as, you know, your partner looked at the waitress a little bit too long. Uh, Sorry, the Mm -hmm. server, we're not using the word waitress anymore. (laughs) Um, But, but, you know, something like that. It's like you, you, you watch them, you know, check out another person for half a second too long. And all of a sudden you're imagining them, you know, leaving you for some younger more beautiful, more interesting person. Um, I mean, that doesn't sound secure to me at all. I think that monogamy appears, appears secure to a lot of people because the potential does not exist for someone to get tempted to, to leave and go do, have a, have a new relationship with someone new. Um, but again, I think that that kind of comes from the conditioning that we've all received that you can only be with one person. And so if something better I'm putting air quotes around better comes along, then you're going to be on the outs. Um, And so monogamous people just take that idea completely off the table so that they don't have to deal with the potential of facing that insecurity. Uh, I personally have chosen polyamory and you'll never hear me say that polyamory is better than monogamy. I know some monogamous couples who have made beautiful lifetime commitments to one another. And I think their relationships are perfectly wonderful and respectable. Uh, I personally think that polyamory is more secure for me because I don't think that really any relationship is permanent. I think that like we do our best to, maintain healthy relationships with the people that we want to for as long as we can, as long as it serves both people. But sooner or later, pretty much all relationships do end. And the idea that the only successful relationship is one that ends with someone dying to me seems very arcane. Um, I think that the knowing that your partner could at any time go choose to spend their time with someone else or they could choose to leave you for someone else and then to every day see them coming back to you and choosing you again and again and again to me feels makes me feel way more secure than any sort of promise or vow or ceremony honestly um Mm I, I think it's attractive to to believe that, you know, once we commit to somebody that nothing is going to come along and disrupt that. But I think our divorce rate and other statistics suggest otherwise. Mm-hmm. Beautifully put. Thank you for that. So um, before we run out of time, I want to ask you about your um, uh, empowerment coaching for men. Um, mm, thank you. Because that's a really interesting topic for me. So what's up with men these days? <laughs> what do you think is holding <laughs> men back from being their true selves or their full selves and connecting with their hearts? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a big question. <laughs> How long do we have? <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> <Five minutes. laughs> I, I really, I recently published an article in the Good Men Project that has this title, What's Holding Back the Modern Man? 
And the thesis of it is basically expectations that uh, this applies to all people, but I think for men, it's especially insidious um, because we talk about our feelings less in this culture, but we grow up being told by authority figures, this is how you have to be, this is what success looks like. And so we, we are conditioned to have all these expectations about how we're supposed to be as a man. But then along the way, we also pick up a whole bunch of other ones um, that we make ourselves. Like we look at, you know, what, what we define as successful men, whether it's a, a star athlete or someone who's made it rich on Wall Street um, or someone who's published a book. And we look at those people and go, wow, they've got it all together. That's what success looks like. That's the kind of perfect I want to be. But in doing so, we overlook the obvious truth that all people are flawed and have struggles and have insecurities and have things that have held them back and knocked them down. You know, people have addictions and traumas in their lives that have led them to behave in all kinds of unsavory ways, even if they are wildly successful in one way. And so we tend to look at men like that and project perfection on, onto them and decide that's how that's how I have to be. That's what success looks like. And so I think a lot of men in this world are shackled with this feeling that they are supposed to be someone other than who they are. And they just spend a lot of their time feeling not good enough. Like they're always trying to step into their potential and it's always just a few steps off in the distance, like a moving goalpost. Um, Indeed, that was my experience of my own life in my 20s, and I've seen a lot of people close to me struggle with this same thing. And so the, the work that I do with men now um, that I call masculine empowerment work is it incorporates many of the technologies that we've already talked about. It incorporates uh, yoga embodiment practice and meditation and things like that to help men stronger sense of purpose, a stronger sense of leadership, a stronger sense of self-acceptance and really just learning how to be okay with who they are and love themselves exactly how they are without some, you know, unending need to be someone other than who they are. Um, and I, I find that, you know, in this, this era of, um, well, we have this kind of current era of me too, but even just looking at people of my generation and the generation before me, we have, you know, waves of feminism that have come through that have told men that you're not okay being the way you were born. You need to change and be a little bit softer, a little more agreeable, and you need to talk about your feelings more. And a lot of men, mm-hmm. myself included, heard that message and thought, okay, cool, I'm going to be the nicest guy ever and <laughs> learned how to get vulnerable and talk about our feelings and stuff like that. And, on, and along the way, we lost a lot of the training that men have received for hundreds and thousands of years about how to be a leader in their own life or, you know, how to provide for, for themselves and a family. And so we see this kind of this chronic failure to launch problem that is um, affecting a lot of young people who are just out of college. Uh, We see a lot of men who are, have a difficult time, have a really easy time expressing certain emotions like maybe sadness or love, but a really difficult time dealing with other, um, other emotions like anger or fear. They don't know what to do with those feelings because they've never been taught. What they've been taught is put them away. They're not acceptable. And I don't think that that serves anybody. Um, 
So it's a lot of the work that I do with men is, is helping them to feel their feelings fully and express them in healthy, nonviolent, non-destructive ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think straight women, too, have said we want men to be vulnerable and talk about their feelings, but we don't want that in lieu of their masculine essence. We, we want a sprinkling of that on top of a manly man. <laughs> so it's a big challenge. Absolutely. It's a lot of expectation we're putting on them. <laughs> totally. So well, thank you for that short description. I know it wasn't very much time, and I do want to give you time to tell our listeners how to get a hold of you. But before we do that, just in general, um, what would you recommend for people new to polyamory? Um, where can they find community and support and answers to their questions and um, feel like they're not the lone wolf out there? Totally. Well, depending on where you live, there are various concentrations of resources. Um, obviously, if you're on either of the coasts near a major metropolis, there are physical communities where people get together and there are happy hours and mixers and things like that. Um, and that's, that's good from a social standpoint. But in terms of like doing polyamory or non-monogamy in a healthy way, I would strongly advise people to seek as much help as they possibly can. Um, You know, read the books that we've mentioned. I also want to give a strong plug to more than two, which I think is the best book Mm -hmm. that's ever been published on this subject. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, read the, read the books, find people in your community, either online or in your, your physical community who have done this before, who have done it, who have more experience than you. And don't be ashamed to come to them and be like, you know what? I am, I am clueless. I don't know what I'm doing here. This sounds like a great idea. My partner really wants it, but I'm scared shitless. Can you please help me? Like, how did you guys navigate this? How did you figure out jealousy? How did you turn it into compersion? How did you figure out the difference between boundaries and rules and which ones worked best? I mean, these are really complex issues. Um, you know, but I also would strongly recommend, you know, seeking out a coach. There are people out there, obviously, who will work with you one-on-one or with you and your partner or with your whole polycule to sit down and figure out the best ways to navigate these complex waters for which there are not very many resources in existence. There are, there are some, but there, <laughs> we could use more of them for sure. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you very much. And also just to say that more than com has a great uh, amount of free information on their website as well. Great, great uh, content Absolutely. on there. Very, very generous of, with their info. Yeah, a couple of Facebook groups that I also really like are the uh, the Sex Positive and Open Relationship Community, which is curated by a friend of mine. Uh, and there's also Polyamory Discussion on Facebook, which has like 33,000 followers or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And you can put any number of questions up on there and, you know, get a whole a whole array of answers. So you won't just get one person's opinion. You'll get, you know, 10 or 100. Um, and you can try various things on and talk about them with your partner and figure out what works for you. Right, and you can also search meetups. There's often meetups in every major city that are uh, open relationship, polyamory, et cetera. Um, Absolutely. Speaking of of meetups, I'm going to be leading a workshop about jealousy this Thursday in San Francisco at a friend's meetup called Personal Development Enthusiasts. (laughs) So um, if anyone (laughs) wants more information about that, you can email me at sumatisparks at gmail.com. But, um, yeah, before we run out of time, we have um, three or four minutes if you'd like to share with us um, how people can reach you. And uh, if you have an offer for our listeners, 
um, or any other events or um, any anything else you want to share about yourself. So take it away. Great. Thank you so much, Sumati. And, and again, it's been a distinct pleasure being on your show. I really appreciate the invitation. Um, you can find me online um, under my name, um, Blake Zeeler. I'm the only one in the world, and you could Google me and, and find me that way. My last name is spelled um, zeal as in zest, and the end of it is the word ear, like how you hear on, on the side of your head. Um, my website is zentropycoaching.com. Zentropy is a a word I made up. It's just Zen combi- combined with entropy. Uh, it's a concept that means peace amidst chaos. Um, but zentropycoaching.com. I have a Facebook business page of the same name, and it's linked to my personal account. So you can look me up in any of those places. Um, feel free to contact me through my business pages or email me directly at blake.zeeler at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Um, and anybody who reaches out for me, I would love to offer a free consultation appointment to singles or couples or constellations of poly folks. I'm happy to sit down with your whole family if you like. Uh, and we could do a you know 90 minutes or more of a free consultation to uh, figure out whether or not we have a good working fit between us. Excellent. That's very generous of you. So 90 minutes or more. Great. And do you do these in person uh, and or video conference or? Uh, correct. Yeah. I mean, if I'm, I'm based in the East Bay area. Um, so anyone who's in the Bay area, I'd be happy to come meet you in person. And in lieu of a face-to-face opportunity, I use video conferencing platform called Zoom, uh, which is quite effective. And, uh, you know, we can meet that way. But, you know, generally something, something richer than voice. I like to get FaceTime in there. It makes for much more intimacy. Excellent. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Blake. It was a really fun conversation. And um, I wish you all the best with your coaching and the men's work and all the things that you're offering in the world. Keep it up. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Sumati. I look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Okay. Bye-bye. So next week on Leading Edge Love Radio at 6 p.m. Pacific time, we will be speaking with the one and only Jessica Hadari. Jessica Hadari is pretty well known in the San Francisco Bay Area for the thriving women's business community she created and continues to nurture. This women's business community is a very spiritually based community. A lot of the women entrepreneurs in the community are um, spiritually based, and it's also a very sex positive community. Now, not every uh, woman in her community uh, has a, a sex education related business, but many of us do, and we're very welcomed there there's a distinct lack of judgment about the work that we do. And um, Jessica, Jessica has just a really incredibly warm uh, goddess queen kind of energy that um, welcomes all of us, all, all aspects of us. So um, please come and learn about her unique magic next week at 6 p.m. on Leading Edge Love Radio. Good night, everyone. <laughs>